Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to episode four of the Thump Podcast, your weekly sweaty and sleep-deprived dive into the world of electronic music and club culture. I'm your host, Colin Joyce, filling in for our editor-in-chief, Emily Friedlander, who's currently down in Austin, Texas, to speak on a panel at South by Southwest. She'll be back next week, but with me today is our features editor, Michelle Luke. Hi. Our associate editor, David Garber. Yo. And a longtime friend of the site and social guru for Vice.com, Trey Smith. Hey. Today we're going to take a look at some recent cross-genre pollination in dance music, namely the ways that Future's new record, Hendrix, builds on a foundation of electronic music and a recent trend of club music producers exhuming the corpses of new metal and alt-rock. Elsewhere, we'll dive into the super scientific methodology we used to craft a recent piece we published about the best cities to party in the United States. And we'll also talk about David's newfound appreciation for the opposite of that, partying off the beaten path at smaller, more intimate events. But before we jump into that, I'm curious, what's everyone been listening to this past week? Michelle? I have been listening to a lot of Norwegian black metal. <laughs> Thanks to a dude that I met over the weekend. And he's like super into it and was telling me that like a lot of black metal bands have experimented with techno before. So I've sort of jumped into that very interesting intersection between black metal and techno. Um, one album that I've really enjoyed is called Metamorphosis. It's by this band called Ulver. This is all super new territory <laughs> for me, but I think it's really interesting how these two worlds have been colliding for years. Yeah, there's um, Fenris. Do you know that, yes. that guy? He, he's, I, I think, what you're probably talking about when you talk about techno. He's like made techno mixes yes. and has an Aphex Twin tattoo, but he also <laughs> plays in Dark Throne, which is mm-hmm. crazy. It just does like crazy tremolo picked and screaming and totally. Um, and I love how they make fun of techno culture while like sort of dabbling in it. They're like, you know, we don't sit in a trailer like, you know, listening to anthrax, please. That's not us, you know? Are they singing in Norwegian usually? These artists? Uh, hard to tell. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty much impossible. I mean, I, so, there are people that Sometimes. Pre- can probably pick out the lyrics, but as much of it that I've listened to, it's it's more about the claustrophobic experience of it than actually picking out any specific elements of it. Black metal's great, though. I, I think that we have a mix coming later this week from Blank Mass, um, mm. who's someone that grew up in the metal community, and he's going to be talking about the... Um, well, the, the interview that I did with him talks about the intersection between metal and electronic music and how it's all it's all body music in this in some way. Yeah. 
I mean, we'll talk about this later, but I think the sort of convergence between like metal music and electronic music is really exciting, especially right now. For sure. David, what have you been listening to? I've been really enjoying uh, for the last week this new Ron Trent Presents Prescription Records box set that was released by Rush Hour, which is a very famous label out of Amsterdam that's always had a big affinity for Chicago House and Detroit techno and stuff like that. Ron Trent's a dance music hero of sorts. He came up in Chicago, you know, kind of in the golden age with guys like, you know, Ron Hardy and Frankie Knuckles, and his dad was a disco DJ, and he started out playing disco and then kind of made his way into house. Interestingly, probably his most well-known song is actually a techno track, which is called Altered States, which is like, you know, real... um, dance floor classic that a lot of people know. But yeah, this box is really cool. It was released on six uh, discs, so it's kind of a, you know, a mammoth offering of their sound, and I just picked it up on digital, actually, which was nice because the box set was pretty expensive. But yeah, a lot of the tracks are solo from Trent, and he also had a really amazing partnership with another guy from Chicago named uh, Chez Demir. And they were kind of a production duo and released a lot of amazing, very spiritual house music, which is something I'm always fascinated by, you know, the more like psychedelic, spiritual end of the dance floor spectrum. One thing I also thought was really cool, you know, about their music is the length of some of their tracks. They have a lot of stuff on the compilation and, you know, from their discography, that's like 10, 14 minutes plus runtime. It's like length. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like you see it more in techno, especially with guys like Phil Lobos in house music, it's a little more rare. It's always fascinated me. I mean, I think it takes a very skilled DJ to be able to drop a song that's 10 minutes plus, but it's also something that's really fun to listen to in your headphones because you can kind of zone out for a while. But their stuff's great. It's very jazzy and dreamy and kind of just amazing. I recommend that you check it out. I find when House and Techno stretches to that length, for me, it's almost like listening to an ambient record. Like, yeah, you just get caught up in the patterns of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're going to make a song that's that long, you know, there's a lot of repetition. You kind of go into these like hypnotic sections, like as you said, where you kind of zone out as you would with ambient music. It's interesting with their stuff because it has that sense but it's also you know very danceable and it's like faster paced and it's loud it's a marathon (laughs) yeah it's a marathon it's a good way to spend a a day if you download the comp it will take you on quite a ride (laughs) how how long is it like in full the the six discs man i'm not sure exactly but i feel like i spent the better half of a day or afternoon (laughs) or morning listening to it He did some really cool collaborations, too, with the group USG out of New York, which is kind of like a more hip-hop vibe. So he's got a very diverse discography that they really captured very well on the uh, compilation, I think. Cool. I've also been listening to a compilation from an Amsterdam label. Music from Memory put out this compilation Mm -hmm. that I think is pronounced Utro Tempo. It's a compilation of Brazilian music from 1978 to 1992. It's yeah, uh, it, it's it's kind of just like Brazilian futurist electronic music from the past. It has this weird sensation when you listen to it of feeling like totally out of time because it feels like people that are still like experimenting now, but it came out 
two decades ago, three decades ago, four decades ago, some of it. It's it's really cool. I wasn't familiar with any of the artists on it before it was released, but I find these reissue compilations that dig deep into like a different culture interesting often because there's just no way for someone in New York City to like uncover that kind of music without being on the ground there, I feel like. I mean, the internet's changed that to some degree, but... It does a lot of the work for you, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Music for Memory has done a lot of cool unearthings of stuff, but this is their first multi-artist compilation, and it's really, really great. Double LP. When you say that they sound like they're experimenting today, do you mean that they sound contemporary, or that, like, experimental music has a sort of timelessness? I think that I would say that experimental music does have a sort of timelessness, but the music feels like it could come out right now. The way that they, like breakdown form and stuff like that. I mean, a lot of electronic music over the years has been intertwined with like ideas of pop music structure too, but this just feels totally outside of that. Even in the songs that have vocals, there's just like, I don't know, it's it's uh, unlike a lot of what I've heard before, which mm-hmm. is a- always the feeling that I'm looking for. <laughs> Trey, I already know what you've been listening to as a card-carrying member of the Future Hive. One of the senior members, yeah. <laughs> but I wanted to dig a little deeper than just our usual like two-minute roundup. Tell me the basic facts about Future's newest album, Hendrix. Real quick, I'd also like to say that I've been listening to a lot of Shoddy Lowe's units in the city. <laughs> it's a great classic album that everybody should revisit every once in a while. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, Hendrix was the second album he put out in two weeks, and it's definitely his most adventurous to date in some ways. And this is someone who's put out a lot of music. Yeah, he's constantly putting out music almost. It's like since December, this is what, his third, fourth? So like, yeah, that's, yeah, it's an output. But this one um, is close to Honest, which came out a few years ago, which a lot of you hated, I know, but it was not a bad album. It just had a little more than people needed on it or wanted. Like, there didn't really need to be a Kanye verse. There didn't really need to be a Wiz Khalifa verse. Yeah. Move That Dope was a fine song. But, uh, yeah. Hendrix is kind of him learning the lessons from Honest and putting out, I don't want to say most pop-friendly, but definitely, like, kind of something that's a little more... What was, like, the main difference between Hendrix and the other album he released at the same time? Is there, like, a real noticeable shift or...? This is a future being kind of open emotionally future which the last few he had free bricks too with gucci not to be confused with free bricks too which was gucci and scooter (laughs) um yeah i I still don't get that one but um (laughs) this one he's still future being a jerk in some ways and being completely not accepting of other people's emotional needs but this one is also him expressing not remorse but just like putting it out there like i am who i am sure yeah I also know you're super interested in the production of it. Can you tell me a bit about... Yeah, this one is probably the closest to a dance album you can make an argument for future doing cross-genre stuff. Yeah, the Metro and the Southside production's still there. There's a DJ Spin song, which you always need. One of his more underrated collaborators, but it's the uh, Dre Moon and the Detail production on here that I think really makes this album stand apart and bring something fresh. For those of you who don't know Dre Moon in detail, they helped make a little song called uh, Drunken Love. Hmm. I assume everybody's heard of Drunken Love. I'm not naming any other song they made. That's all you need to know. They made Drunken Love. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's... One thing Future's always needed to do a little more is, like, 
kind of veer away from the typical collaborators because I think there's a lot of great stuff he's capable of doing yet. And like when he puts his foot out into the unknown, this is the kind of cool stuff we get. And one of those cool things is like incredible, which is unlike anything that Future's <laughs> ever done. I think that that's what you're saying when you say he's making a dance record. Tell me a bit incredible. about that song. Fresh Air is another great example. What's the big it's, difference in those songs production-wise? It's lighter, it's airier. You can hear it more upbeat in the uh, production. Like when the songs start, usually with Future, you get like, oh, I'm about to just run through a building right now. <laughs> and, and this one, you get a little more like, oh, hey, I'm eating a snow cone on a beach with a pretty girl. And I like to hear more of that from Future. Sounds nicer than running through a building. <laughs> Well, running through a building is important every once in a while. <laughs> yeah, flipping over a table, standing on it, whatever you want to do. <laughs> but like, yeah, Future says something along the lines of an interview with Zane Lowe when he was asked, like, why did you make these two albums? And they're, like, completely different. And it's just, like, some days you feel different. <laughs> and I think that's just the best way to put it. Like, yeah, some days you feel like running through buildings, and some days you feel like just cuddling up and being emotional. Sure. Yeah, I, th- I think the thing that struck me about Incredible is that it's almost like an 80s synth pop song, like yeah. like John Hughes' soundtrack or like the band Sparks or something like <laughs> like that. Just like the brightest, like glossiest, most candy-coated synthesizers that you'll ever hear. He, he and, got and on, on the Ellen show with this. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know. I think what's curious about you saying that this is a dance record, though, is that I feel like of the recent popular future records this one's the one that i hear out the least you know i I think that like by making music that's actually like indebted to electronic music it seems like djs don't want to play this one as much it's weird because there's definitely stuff on there to play in rotation at parties and all but when you're at a party you don't really want to think about oh i did this girl wrong (laughs) you want to yeah, you want to hear, like, yeah, your baby mom fucks me better when the rents do. Like, that's, yeah, that's what's going to make you, like, get up and get, like, all hype and just prepare for a good night. The thing about Future is it requires a lot of context, not just what's going on in his life, but what's going on in your life as well. There's a lot of self-reflection that comes with listening to Future music. And, uh, yeah, I don't want to think about all that kind of stuff when I'm out. <laughs> so this is more the dance record for, like, in your bedroom. Yes, this Maybe is, Maybe tearing like, up a bit. <laughs> this is pretty much, like, I would love to hear, like, Future make a shoegaze record. <laughs> okay, yeah. that makes sense. Totally. This record is one of my favorites that he's done. I, I, it's crazy because, like, I, I remember when Future came out that day, I was, like, G-chatting somebody. I was like, why does Future always make albums this long? <laughs> and then and then Hendrix is the same amount of songs, and it does not feel that It long. feels like he's saying more on Hendrix than he did on Future. Yeah, and somehow doesn't feel like it takes up as much time. <laughs> it, it feels shorter, honestly. Yeah. It's, I mean, was it Sorry at the end, like, his second best outro next to Cody and Crazy, I think. But it's just him rapping for like six, seven minutes straight, and it feels like a three-minute song. Like, yeah, he just has a very, very good way of doing that. Time stops. Those help. (laughs) We've looked at rap adopting dance music, but I wanted to talk about an interesting move that I've seen recently in another direction, which is this wave of underground club DJs and producers who seem fascinated with alt-rock and new metal. We ran a piece this past week by our Canadian editor Max Mertens that rightly, I think, points to people like Total Freedom and 
the wave of producers influenced by him like Tox and LSDXOXO that are all of a sudden making edits of Linkin Park songs and dropping Slipknot at peak hours at club nights, which is something that's been like in the air for a while. Like I feel like there have been people talking about a new metal revival for a while, but it's hit club music in a big way in the past year. I remember the first time I saw it was I saw Scratch just about a year ago, and in the middle of their set, they just played the acapella for Evanescence's Bring Me to Life. My God, that song! It shows up in every single mix now. It's almost a cliche at this no, point. No, definitely. I, I, so the first time I heard it was uh, them just playing it with like police sirens and sounds of breaking glass over the top of it, and then that was the end of their set. It was like in an art gallery, so it was like, it, it wasn't like they were trying to keep a party mood going. It was, it was a middle finger on the way off the stage. But since then, I've been hearing stuff like that everywhere. Like a, a year later, uh, I, the most recent Ghetto Gothic that I went to, which I think was two weeks ago, that's a party here in New York that's been going for a long time, run by Venus X. I heard two different producers play that um, that ev- same Evanescence acapella in the same <laughs> night. <laughs> um, so it, it definitely feels like peak new metal <laughs> in a way. And I think that Max points in his piece to a sense of catharsis that's in both new metal and club music that um, makes sense aesthetically that like it's about like what you were saying about running through a brick wall like like you want to do that on the dance floor and you want to do that when Fred Durst is screaming at you like it's it's the same what don't I want to do when Fred Durst <laughs> is screaming at me exactly <laughs> so there is this weird aesthetic link but I've never been so sure like how serious these people are about it like there's definitely like there's a smirk to it that i have always been processing when i like hear like someone play papa roaches last Last resort Resort. yeah Yeah, last resort into slob on my knob like it's like it's like what what, like what is the statement there aside from haha you know is any part of it trolling you think i mean i think that there's always been a part of that especially in total freedoms djing like Mm. he's the kind of guy who will just play the sounds of breaking glass and nothing else and then beyonce singing the star spangled banner to like a big club at peak hours and and yeah i mean that's that's definitely trolling in some way but it's also just like forcing you to confront like what a club space is supposed to be like am i listening am i dancing am i socializing like where what am i doing in this space right now but playing a new metal song playing a slipknot song isn't asking that same question so i'm curious like have you guys encountered this i mean i know you have michelle but what are your feelings when you hear corn in the club well, I think the first reaction the is, cop. haha, this is a joke, this is a troll. But I think that underneath that, the reason why people are so attracted to these sounds is because there's a sort of like really innocent earnestness to this music. For sure. A sort of like genuine quality that when you hear like an emo song or whatever, you're like, yeah, this person like really feels this pain and is like trying to talk about it. And I think that given the current climate where, you know, up is down and fact is fiction and everything just feels really confusing, that this sort of like sincerity and earnestness can be really appealing healing to some people. I guess like part of it is also just the overall mid-2000s nostalgia that's going on right now that's sure. beyond. Jinkos are back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> definitely Ow. all over fashion. You see it, you know, in like the vetements, like hoodies and all this stuff. There's a sort of huge revival of that like hot topic aesthetic right now. And I think that fits in really well with what's going on with like 
Slipknot and Linkin Park. I, I guess my question, and, and this is something that I'm always figuring out for myself when I hear it, and especially as I hear it more and more, is like, is it cool? Like, like, do I even enjoy this? Like, I, I, there's like some part of like my like lizard brain that just like wants to throw down as soon as I hear these songs. But is it artistically interesting to, to you at all? It's making me think about stuff I haven't thought about in at least a decade. So yeah, I'll, we'll call it cool. I'm yeah. curious, like in some of the instances where you guys have heard it, as far as like, is it artistic or not? Most of the time, is it something that's like mixed into the song? Like, you know, there's a transition and it kind of appears, or is it like, you know, full stop totally throwing this on, jarring? I've seen it both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, the most interesting recent one that I've seen was I saw LSDXOXO and he blended Linkin Park's Numb into Mallgrab's Can't totally seamlessly. I I had to tell David about it immediately. (laughs) That sounds nice. And it just like works. And sometimes like when the point isn't just do you remember this song, I think that that's a cool thing. There's a way to employ it that like hits those nostalgia centers but also does something new with it that I think that some people are definitely doing. Yeah, I think every time you have such loaded source material, it's like how you choose to deploy it that determines whether or not it has artistic merit. Yeah, I mean, the question of like whether we are willing to indulge nostalgia in dance music is something that's always circling, but it feels so much more pointed in this where you're deliberately taking something that was... I guess, heralded as tasteless at the time. Something that tastemakers did not think were cool. And then suddenly throwing it into a context where all of the cool people are, if that category exists. There's something interesting about it. And maybe the point is just the disorientation of it, because that's so much of what this vein of club music is about, is just like making you forget where you are, <laughs> making making things feel sort of weird and off. But also drawing sort of a line of continuity between those sounds and the club music that's being made today. I've heard sets where someone will play like a Linkin Park song and then will play like a Moro song or something. And sure. it's just like, it makes sense. Like these songs blend really well together and there is a continuity between them. Yeah. What, what do you think that is like sonically? I, like we talked about it like as a feeling, but I think there is something in the sounds too in the sound of a Linkin Park song and in the sound of something on Non. There is something to that, right? Well, it's the sort of, like, the the metal textures. <laughs> sure. There's a harshness. Uh-huh. I found it even more interesting when you, you talk about black metal. I've seen people drop, like, Burzum songs in the club, and that works for me. The, like, prickliness of those songs. But there's something, like that's always been sort of like the edges rounded off in new metal. And I think that that's part of why mm-hmm. people didn't like it at the time mm-hmm. was that it, it was like a unthreatening version of this sound. Mm-hmm. So to hear it come back is, is interesting. One thing that I saw on Twitter in response to the article that I think makes sense is that somebody just said, and I can't remember who it was, that the thing that unites club music and new metal is that it's a fandom of queer people. And I think that new metal at the time obviously got lambasted for being a very macho, very masculine form, but I think that it hit a lot of queer kids in the suburbs who felt like outcasts, and Mm -hmm. and, um, club music today, I think, fills the same role in some way. Sort of reclaiming the sounds as ours now that, like, you know, most straight people don't give a shit. (laughs) 
Michelle, I wanted to ask you about a piece that you put together this past week on the best places to party in the United States. Right. It was part of our Dancing versus the State week, which we had last week, which was all about examining the role between nightlife and the authorities throughout history, starting from like the prohibition through Giuliani till today. So while we were planning the content for that week, I was thinking a lot about how laws and regulations have such an important impact on how thriving or bad a nightlife scene can be. And it seems pretty obvious what time clubs are allowed to stay open until will have like a huge impact on the scene. But I don't think people really think about these things that much or these connections. Like I think it's really fascinating, for example, how Berlin became like such a party city because of like laws that were instated or lack thereof of laws that were instated after World War II. The fact that like clubs are able to stay open for 24 hours is like something that like has a historical reasoning behind it. So while making Making this list of the top cities to party in, basically, we came up with a bunch of criteria that we thought would impact how good a city's party scene would be, such as last call and whether Uber or Lyft or some kind of taxi app was available, what time the last train runs, how easy it is to buy beer, like after hours on a Friday. And we even threw in stuff like whether bathrooms were gender neutral or not, because we thought that that sort of policy would indicate or at least give some suggestion of how LGBT friendly those cities were. So we chose over 20 cities and then found all of the information for the criteria for all of them. And then based on that, I had a friend who's really good at math and statistics to create an algorithm for me that helped me determine how the cities would actually be ranked according to a raw score. What were you expecting to see as the results and what ended up being the actual results. I kind of suspected that New York would be first, not because of personal bias, but just because like my sense is that New York still has the best sort of like conditions for dance parties, plus like having a lot of actual parties. So what what was interesting to me is New Orleans did really well. I think it was was it number Super surprised by that. Kind of fascinating. Well, I was surprised because I've been to New Orleans and I've written a story about their scene and it's still really small, even though they have like a really strong sort of underground gay scene there. Like, I don't think that they have that many sort of club parties on an average Friday. I don't think that people think of New Orleans as like a place where they go to like go to a bunch of raves. But it did really well because it has the infrastructure for it. They don't have last call times. Their public transportation runs for 24 hours. You can drink Um, a beer on the street. Right, exactly. (laughs) So they did really well. LA did really well as well. I think nothing really surprised me so much. I think that I kind of knew which cities would end up in like the top three or four. What I was more curious about was the cities that came further down in the list, like Austin and Houston, Portland and San Francisco and cities like that. I think the surprising thing to me was not seeing Las Vegas on there. Mm, Yeah. Um, if only because it's like known as the place where like normal people will go for this sort of experience totally and they don't have last call laws either i'm pretty sure not that i've ever been there or have any huge interest to go there (laughs) um but it just seems like it in the american cultural imagination that's the signifier for this sort of like late night abandon (laughs) it was a whole noisy episode oh yeah yeah 
I didn't uh, see that when one. they went to uh, Vegas and they just it was strictly like big EDM stuff and right bottle service type bottle service Bieber was singing at a pool <laughs> like yeah, it's yeah that is really surprising they didn't make it yeah. maybe maybe if if a metric had been like the like straight up dollars spent on nightlife then oh, it, Vegas it, it, would have to be in there yeah, Vegas would just have its own article ranking <laughs> ten others I feel like their scene is so kind of just like one sided like for what they offer. It's sure. huge, but there's really nothing else from what I've heard. There's no, like, real underground scene, which yeah. is kind of surprising because, like, you have a lot of people going there to party, and they might I be more I think there is an underground. Think. It's just not very big. Mm-hmm. Like, I just got pitched by a guy who throws an underground party in Vegas who said that, like, he's constantly battling against the EDM clubs. So I'm sure it's pretty tough for, like, underground promoters there. But I do think a scene exists. Which they is should weird do a party in a casino bank vault, <laughs> Ocean's Eleven style. Like, what's accessibility in Vegas for these parties, too? Because not everybody's getting into those huge clubs. Most right. people are, like, ending up waiting in line all mm-hmm. night and all. So it's really interesting those underground dudes have a problem attracting other people. Mm-hmm. Or is it just, like, so far off the strip kind of stuff? I don't know. I haven't really, like, dug in too much into this party in particular. I think it's, like, a money thing with Vegas. I mean, like, if you have enough money, you can have, like, the wildest night. So it is a good point, like you said, because if you go there and maybe want to go crazy on more of a budget, underground stuff Well, it's interesting be to better. think about, like, if your city has a really big mainstream scene, does that, like, so-called trickle-down effect happen and, like, help the underground to grow? Or does it hurt the underground because everyone like wants to go see David Guetta. I don't know. Um, Depends how cool people are. (laughs) Outside of New York, which I think like we all have our own feelings about, where is the best place that you've been in the United States to party that's not here? Uh, Or any personally memorable experiences? Chicago over the summer was really fun. Hmm. It's on the list. Surprise, it's only fourth. (laughs) But yeah, Chicago is a blast. Atlanta's also pretty fun too. I spent four years down there in college, and it's there was always something to do. There's always somebody having a party somewhere, or if not, you just go to the strip club. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> anywhere else. I'm not really surprised New York was the top spot again, not because you know I live here, because you know there was an algorithm, like Michelle said. And I think when you add it all up, I mean, so many cities like have great scenes, but there would probably be that one thing that kind of makes it a bit of a drag. Like Trey said, I mean, Chicago is great. I've been to like amazing parties there, but stuff ends really early. So if you want to go all night, it's probably not the best. And LA is kind of the same, but yeah, I don't know. I had a really fun time partying in Philly a couple weeks or months ago. I think the DIY scene there in particular is really strong. I asked some of them, like, have you guys been facing any crackdowns in the wake of, like, the Oakland fire? Because I know a lot of other cities have been sort of been feeling the pinch. But they were like, no, not really. (laughs) Um, And I went to a really sick noise-ish experimental show in literally someone's basement with, like, the kitchen behind the dance floor and stuff like that. And I haven't been to something like that in New York for a while. You know, so I think it's really cool that like they have this really very grassroots DIY scene that's on the come up in addition to proper clubs. Sure. I think that that's a case of the numbers not really telling the full stories because you can't account for experiences like that. Mm -hmm. Like when we were when I know that when we counted events happening in a specific city, it was events listed on RA. But Mm you're not going to have a show in someone's kitchen on there. Totally. And those experiences are often like more meaningful than what you can get at a club anyway. I have very fond memories of being in Baltimore at a 
party at someone's house that turned into a house show in the middle of the party. They just had a band set up downstairs, and there was a band that was just like at the party, or or a group of people. I, it wasn't people that I knew, and they just spontaneously started playing a set. <laughs> Things got more wild from there. I was standing outside at one point, and the the police showed up, and someone threw a full beer at a cop. Hmm. Um, oh, that's a bad idea. No, it didn't go so well. Yeah. Uh, the, so the, so what happened was the cop <laughs> the cop opened the door, and the beer came flying out. I'm not sure if if <laughs> wait, wait wait so we don't know if it had left the person's hand by the time they saw the cop or right. if he was just throwing a beer to throw a beer right okay then he was he was dragged out of the party and the, the party kind of stopped at that point <laughs> time but, is everything but I, I feel like when you talk about a party scene in a city you have to account for things like that happening too like like experiences that sort of unfold spontaneously just because there's a, a lot of like people in a place um <laughs> And there's no way to put a number on that. I, I think that it's it's sort of like a truism, but you make your own fun. Basically. Oh, yeah, Savannah's very, very good, too. It's another open container lawsuit. <laughs> and they don't really have, like, too many dance parties, like dance music, but it's like everybody in the city's just out in the main area at night. And Uber took an Uber down there. It was, like, three bucks. <laughs> so, like, yeah, good party city. The list definitely tended to favor places with, like, big above-board events, the stuff that you can easily find on Resident Advisor or MyFreeConcert.com. That's that sort of <laughs> deal. But, David, I know you've been doing some thinking about this phenomenon lately and how you've been drawn to the opposite of that. Yeah. Tell me a bit about your recent renaissance with going to smaller and more intimate parties. Yeah, I mean, I think... I moved to New York about four years ago, and when I first got here, I really started going to clubs and a lot of warehouse parties, and I was definitely in awe at first about going to, you know, a warehouse party with, like, 3,000 people there, and you've got lasers and all sorts of crazy production, and it was pretty incredible, and they were still, you know, it was underground music. It had kind of an underground feel. Yeah, I mean, fast forward years later, this weekend, God, I was going to try to not mention Moody Man <laughs> on the show again. But, uh, yeah, I went to see Moody Man and Carl Craig, and, you know, I was super excited about it. It was a very anticipated show, very hotly tipped. Uh, you know, the tickets were in the fourth or fifth or sixth tier, and they were sold out or whatever. And, you know, the music was great. I was really stoked to see Moody Man, you know, in Brooklyn. He played a really great set. But I kind of just had this feeling when I was there that, you know, these something about these bigger events and, you know, you're getting into, like, 500-plus people. It just, I don't know, I didn't have that same feeling and feel the same vibe I've been getting lately going to smaller, more intimate parties. I feel like there's just something with maybe a bit of a kind of nervous anticipation you get going to these events. Like, it's so big, it's expensive, like, what will you know, go wrong. You have like a big headlining DJ that you build up in your head. Not to say that, you know, they weren't great. I guess I feel like sometimes all of those knickknacks and that kind of sensory overload can maybe take away a little bit from the magic of the party, for me at least. And that when I'm going to more intimate parties, even if maybe there's a smaller name and there's not like nine different lasers coming out of every orifice that 
you kind of just sink a little bit into the music. And I don't know, maybe it's like less stressful. Sure. Like you're saying, there's almost a pressure to have fun when you've invested yeah, in like, one of those I don't know. I was there and everyone was going crazy and having a good time, but everyone's kind of like looking around. They're taking photos. You know, there's like projections. They're making food. There's like four <laughs> bars and... Yeah, I mean, that's fun if that's what you're looking for. And it's not to say I didn't have a good time, but yeah, I don't know. I guess for me right now, it's not exactly what I'm looking for, which was interesting. It was most interesting for me because I was seeing, you know, one of my favorite DJs and I was like so stoked about that. But it felt like it was missing something else for me. One of the things I like about smaller parties is the older I get, the less I want to be around people. <laughs> that I don't know, at least. And uh, that's one of the things that intimate parties kind of provide. You know, for the most part, people are going to be on decent behavior. It's easy to call out some, I don't want to say bullshit, but we'll say bullshit. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's just, it's not necessarily a more curated feel, but you're getting in there, you get to actually see and be around the people you like, maybe even get mm -hmm. to talk to them for a little bit. Yeah. The drinks aren't going to be $15, like that one bar in Brooklyn who's not going to be named. <laughs> um yeah, Michelle, actually, before I even knew anybody in this room, Michelle threw that party in the back of the fried chicken place. And I think that's, like, one of my favorites I've been to in New York and just, like, a good example of what smaller parties can be, just, like, kind of off the beaten path. You're going to get something, like, weird and different, and you know you're going to enjoy it, like, just based off of what it says on paper alone. So, like, yeah. There's a room for there to be a personality. Yeah, exactly. I think that's huge. I mean, party I went to is, like, it's a popular club night warehouse party it kind of can lack that personality not because they're doing something wrong i guess but when you bring in so many different people and it's so big there's just so much going on it's almost music festival like for yeah. night yeah well i think these are totally different experiences and perhaps it's not fair to necessarily compare them to each other when like to me a small intimate party is the equivalent of going to a dinner party in someone's house and a big sort of um, warehouse rave or whatever is like going to like a buffet or like a five course meal <laughs> sure. or something you know and like these big production parties like they are such a spectacle and such an mm -hmm. experience like nobody spends hundreds of thousands of dollars on lighting <laughs> when, when it's like a small party but they do for these big parties and you can't get that experience elsewhere and also just the energy of like thousands of people in one room I don't think you can ever reach that level of energy at a small party so I'm standing up for mm -hmm. these like big I productions I totally understand where you're coming from but like just in terms of the amount of like energy that bodies like you know, radiate in like a space. If you have a thousand people, it's yeah. just more energy than like a couple hundred. And that doesn't mean that one is better than the other. I think that they're just different. You need a little bit of balance in your life. <laughs> Keep going back to that metaphor, but it's really, really good. It's a good one. Well, I think that's about all we have for today. Thanks for listening to the Thump Podcast, which is a production of Vice Media and Thump. You can read the articles that we've referenced at thump.vice.com or over on Twitter at thumpthump or facebook.com slash thumpthump. Do you guys want to say where we can find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at, at Slimmy Hendrix. Don't at me, though. <laughs> I'm at DL Garber on Twitter. You can at me, I guess, if you want. I'm Michelle Luke, L-H-O-O-Q. And I'm at Out of Sight Outta. Thanks again for tuning in, and please, if you enjoy what you've heard, rate and subscribe on iTunes. See you next week. Emily will be back then. Peace. Free Bobby Schmurder. <laughs>
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.